Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This month was a biography month. I got sucked down into a couple biographies. I was finishing the life of Oswald Chambers in my car before work, and I was crying. I don't cry often, but I was crying when Oswald Chambers dies. And students were getting out, ready to go to class and looking at me, and I said, you don't look at a grown man while he's crying. Keep walking. Keep walking, kids. But I've been, uh, I think I've mentioned, I've been reading, kind of meditating on the life of George Whitfield. Um, hands down, the most powerful preacher, evangelist, uh, maybe since the Apostle Paul, a lot of church historians say he is, in an emphatic sense, that he is the most influential preacher um, since the Apostle Paul um, throughout his missionary travels. And it's hard to, to look at the life of George Whitfield for longer than 10 minutes and to not deal with this um, controversy that he had with, uh, with John Wesley. Um, so obviously Wesley, who we remember today as the founder of the Methodist movement, um, and there's this interaction, this tension that's happening throughout their lives. Wesley and Whitfield met um, at Oxford. You, have you ever heard of the Holy Club? They had this group of guys that got together, prayed. Uh, they had a group called the Holy Club. It was this kind of regimented, um, very um, hard living, uh, trying to be holy. They actually didn't quite understand the gospel yet. It was, it was slightly legalistic. Um, and, and, and Wesley wouldn't say that he was born again until much later. Whitfield was the first out of that group called the Holy Club to actually grab hold of the gospel and to have a born-again experience. Um, but Whitfield, the, the other things they were called, my, my favorite thing that, that people called the Holy Club was they called them Bible moths, and I like that. And, and they also called them Methodist. And that's where the term Methodist came from, and it came from uh, this idea that they were this regimented group of people trying to live holy. And so John Wesley didn't have a staple on the term Methodism, at least not originally. There were, there were multiple groups called, that, that were given the Methodist title, and, and, and George Whitfield and John Wesley, they had this doctrinal schism um, in that George Whitfield was a mild Calvinist and, Whit, and Wesley was a um, very much an Arminian. And so in lay terms, Whitfield emphasized the um, sovereignty of God, predestination, and election, and Wesley emphasized um, the free will of man and um, the ability of every person to choose and believe. And so theologically, I'm on the Wesleyan camp, but, but practically, um, it seems as you study history that Wesley was a little more of an administrative, type A, aggressive kind of man, and Whitfield was a little more um, obviously a profound preacher, but he was a little, seemed to be a little more gracious in his interactions. And so the fight actually began with Wesley um, preaching publicly against Whitfield, writing against Whitfield. And remember, they were close, close friends. And so um, it's interesting to watch the life of George Whitfield. Listen, the, the, he was a kid, 20, 24 years old. He's preaching to 30,000 people, open air. He was the first open air preacher. He invented it. Like just open air, churches aren't having him. 30,000 people at 24 years old. At 28 years old, it said that he preached to 80,000 people, open air, no microphone. Okay, 80,000 people. 
um, he had an interesting relationship with Benjamin Franklin, a really interesting relationship. And Benjamin Franklin went to hear him one day and, you know, his kind of inquisitive mind. And Benjamin Franklin decides that he wants to try to figure out how many people can actually hear George Whitfield. So he starts to, George Whitfield's preaching from kind of a street square. And Benjamin Franklin starts to walk it. And he's trying to like math out how many, how far is his voice really carrying? How many people are really listening? And Benjamin Franklin said that that day there were at least 30,000 people that could hear his voice. Okay, like we trust Benjamin Franklin for everything else. I think we can trust his, his, his estimate here. 30,000 people um, listening to this 24, 25-year-old man. Um, so at 28, he's preaching to 100, some, some say maybe up to 100,000 people with no microphone. Bizarre anointing, bizarre gifting. He doesn't really want anything to do with controversy with the Wesleys. He's, he's um, a, a fan of the Wesleys. At one point, he says of John Wesley, I'm not worthy to untie Wesley's shoes. Um, but Wesley... Uh, kind of put out this hit article, this hit sermon um, because of their theological differences. Um, and Whitfield pleaded with them, like, let's not have this, 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 this what's the word, schism. Let's, let's not break away. This is, Whitfield was kind of saying, we do have doctrinal differences, but they're not orthodox differences. Let's hang together. Let's hold on together. Let's be fruitful together. Um, but eventually, I think two years after Whitfield, or Wesley released kind of a hit article, Whitfield responded. Um, and, and it kind of broke out, right? Like they, they, they had this, this, this feud, this in the newspapers, in the letters. There were, there were times where Whitfield would go to preach at a church that he kind of planted, that he had, um, he preached, the people were saved, he helped set it up a pastor. This was a place that he kind of foreran, and he would go to preach, and he wasn't allowed to preach there anymore because Wesley had um, preached against him. So this, this, this schism, this this problem broke out. And so the Methodist societies, they were all Anglican. They, Wesleyanism wasn't a denomination yet. Methodist, uh, they were Methodist societies, and they, they began to split into these camps. And one camp, were, there were Wesleyan Methodist societies, and one camp, they were called Calvinistic Wesleyan, or, or um, Calvinistic Methodist societies. And so in their later years, this is what I'm trying to get to, which was, which was interesting. In their later years, Charles Wesley um, started to actually lean a little bit towards uh, Whitfield theologically. And, and Whitfield said to Charles Wesley, don't, don't break from your brother. You're just going to hinder the work of Christ. He said, you don't, we don't need to hash out this, our doctrinal differences. He said, we, we have differences. Yes, I'm responsible for my people. You're responsible for your people. But, but we don't need to keep feuding. We're only slowing down our work here. We're only working against ourselves. And so Whitfield started playing this role where he's trying to mend bridges. And, 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 and what it came down to, and, and every story has two sides, right? And so I've read uh, Wesley's side of the story too, read West, uh, Wesley biography um, this month as well. What it came down to was Whitfield meeting with Wesley, and, and probably the strongest biographer says this. It says that Whitfield knew that Wesley was such a kind of type A control personality, that Whitfield basically said, the only way this feud's going to end is if I give up leadership. And so Whitfield went to Wesley, he gave up leadership of all his Calvinistic Methodist societies. He decided that I'm, I'm he basically said, Whitfield is a better, or Wesley is a better organizer than me anyway, okay? 
Wesley is the organizer. He is the getting people, releasing people into ministry. I'm an evangelist. I'm just a servant of men is what he kept calling himself, a servant of men. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach and I'm going to evangelize in all Orthodox societies. And so I'll go to the Presbyterians, I'll go to the Baptists, and I'll continue to support the Methodist movement, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my role as, in leadership so that Wesley can organize this thing. And so he bowed out, really bowed out. And so today you go to every major city in America and Wesley's name is planted all over it, right? Like there's not one city without a Wesleyan chapel. You go through Atlanta and you see the Wesleyan seminaries and Wesley's name is everywhere. But I'm, I'm starting to be convinced and I go, well, who am I? I'm not a historian. But in the last month, I've been convinced that, that Whitfield bowed out of his name having any significance in history. We don't talk about him a lot much, but he is the most important preacher of the last 2,000 years, hands down. But I'm convinced that his name's not on our streets, but he might actually have a greater reward in heaven. Then when we get to heaven, we might go, oh, Whitfield was the real deal. And, and, and in honesty, the Great Awakening uh, would not happen without Whitfield. I'm, I'm just talking now, so give me a second, I'm going to get to the sermon here. Um, Jonathan Edwards had Whitfield preach for him one time. Um, and Jonathan Edwards sat on the front row. You know, Jonathan Edwards is a profound preacher, like one of the greatest preachers of history. Jonathan Edwards sat on the front row and cried the whole time that he preached. And his wife, uh, Sarah, said, I've never heard preaching like Whitfield. Um, and that's got to be a shot to his ego for his wife to say, that was the best preacher I've ever heard. <laughs> but, but what I'm trying to say is, my God, the man had humility. And, and he would say in his younger years that the crowds got to his ego. But the humility to say, I don't need to be in control. I'll step down and let Wesley and his administrative gift carry this thing, and I'll just be the servant. I'll just support. And so he started to go to the Methodist societies, and, and the, there was a joining, and Wesley kind of allowed Whitfield to preach again. And, and, and in their unity, I, I believe in, in our terminology, when they stepped back to unity, they opened up a whole, a whole other measure of anointing to be released. And when Whitfield bowed out, there, there was this, just, just layers of anointing that began to flow. When different members, when the evangelist says to the administrator, like this type A, I'll work with you, there was this anointing released, and we are indebted to their movement. Wesley. Um, was asked, Whitfield died, I think, around the age 55. Wesley lived to be an old man, and Whitfield actually asked for Wesley to do his funeral. And at the funeral, um, or after the funeral, Wesley was asked, you've probably heard this before, uh, a woman asked him, do you expect to see Whitfield in heaven? And it says that um, John Wesley paused for a while and said, no, I don't. And the, choir, the, the lady asking exclaimed, I was afraid you would say that. And John Wesley said, um, he said, don't misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory that he'll stand so near the throne that, that one like me, who am less than the least, I'll never catch a glimpse of him. What I want to talk to you about this morning is, is unity and is communion and fellowship. And I, and I want to say to you that we all in our sin nature have this innate bent towards disunity. And in our sin nature, we all have this innate bent towards 
wanting to be known and wanting to be heard. And it's not natural for us to bow out and to work with other people. And I, and I, and I want to say this, and I think we need to remind ourselves of this, is that we are actually grafted into what God calls a body. And emphatically over Scripture, it says that the hand needs the eye and the eye needs the hand and that you don't get to do this alone. And so as I'm, as I'm praying over this word in, um, in this early this morning, I was praying and I felt like God was saying that even in our language, especially, I felt like God said, especially in our charismatic Pentecostal communities, in our language, we are so about your calling and what you're going to do. And even in our prophetic speech, we say, you're called to shake the nations rather than saying, we're called to shake the nations and you're going to play a significant part. I feel like we've, we've lost this idea of communal living, of corporate calling, and of people working together and functioning together in order to see the gospel advanced in our communities. And I have to say this, that the, the gospel is not about any one of us alone. You're, you remember in, in Rick Warren's uh, The Purpose Driven Life, I think it was like the opening of chapter one. It's not about you. And I think we've forgotten that, that it's about us. And maybe we should start saying, you're called to help us. You're called to help the body. You're going to play a unique role in the body in reaching this community. Because I'm afraid that even in our language, we've actually fed people's egos. And, and we've, when we've made it about arrogance. And we can't afford for it to be that way. Do you, do you kind of catch what I'm saying? And in our, I got a long word today, so I'm going to talk fast to get through this. But in our, um, in our emphasis on individuality, um, some have said often that the Protestant Reformation never quit protesting. That, that I'm, I, I, think, I think Caleb's opinion is sometimes, and especially in Pentecostal circles, because when you, when you look at the Pentecostal movement, I mean, we really bust forth at Azusa Street. There was never a moment in church history in which the, the gifts of the Spirit weren't in action. Okay, there were always people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Specifically in Azusa Street Revival, there was an emphasis, like the Holy Spirit emphasized the gifts of the Spirit, and a movement began to be birthed, and we were the outcasts from the start. We were immediately chast- we, we, we were um, looked down upon, cast out of communities, and so I think in response to that, um, charismatics have sometimes walked in this almost spirit of rebellion, if I can call it that, of you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm this very individual thing. Like we, we, we don't talk about communal living a lot. Um, what I want to tell you is that I, I do believe in godly rebellion, okay? I don't believe in perfect submission. I am a celebrator of the Protestant Reformation. I believe in it fully. Um, I think that when, um, when Darius says to Daniel, um, or says to the uh, Babylonian captives and, and, and Babylon as a whole, uh, it says, for 30 days, no one's allowed to pray that, to any other God, and Daniel goes up to his room and prays. I think that's called godly rebellion. Okay, there is such a thing as Luther, and Luther was not perfect, saying to his leadership, no, this is not what Scripture says. I'm not going to bow. There is a thing such as godly rebellion. I think that we've latched on to that idea, and we've allowed godly rebellion at times to be perverted into just rebellion. And, and so in Pentecostal churches, we're known for our little fragmentations. We're known to have, and, and I've worked at, I mean, I've, I've only been around Pentecostal churches. I know I'm not, I know I'm young, I get it, um, but multiple charismatic churches, and, and we are known to have the, the segmented groups on the side who are doing their own thing, who don't want to be a part of the body. 
we're just known for that, and I think that comes from wanting to be people who have this godly rebellion thing in me that I'm going to hold on to the gospel, but at times what we start to do is we, we, we're actually looking for a fight, and we elevate ourselves above others, and we refuse to submit to leadership, and we're not into communal, bodily, gospel outreach. And I'm saying we are not anointed in our fragmented section. We're, we're anointed when we come together. You guys, are you guys okay with where I'm going? The Protestant Reformation just keeps fragmenting. There are things that are worth fighting for, and there are things that are not worth fighting for. And we've got to learn that. That takes wisdom. That takes discernment. But we've got to learn it. We, don't have, we actually don't have a choice. If we don't learn that lesson, we will sacrifice our anointing. If we don't learn, what, what are things we fight over, and what are things we say, okay, you, you believe this way, I believe this way, let's come, let's come together. We could talk more about that in the future, but, but we don't want to be petty. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm getting where I'm going. I'm going to start in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 11. I want to talk to you about this idea, which we call the kenosis, and I, I want to try to just plan it in the epistle of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, if you'll open it to Philippians, it'll help you as we move forward, because we're going to dance around Philippians, trying to suck this idea back down into the context. Philippians 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm in the English Standard Version. So Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you have any participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind. If you participate in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in the communion that we have through the gospel of Jesus in the Holy Spirit, Paul says, be of one mind. Work towards unity. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That, that Greek literally means a thing to be clung to. Although he was in the absolute form of God, his very, he was the same nature as God. He was fully God. He did not count that as something he had to cling to. To, to grab on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a problem if we can't humble ourselves. You understand that Christ is the only one with the right to stand up. If anyone has the right to say, I am worthy, he's the only one. And he empties himself as, a, as a, a prophetic picture of what we're called to. And we stand around with our arrogance filling our bones, living in pride. Christ is the only one who has anything to be proud of. We are bought by grace. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and, that, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
therefore, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of a servant, because he was obedient even unto death, God says to Jesus, now you have the name that is above every name. So within the Trinity, there is this action going. In, within the Trinity, there is this community within the three persons of the Godhead in which Jesus says to God, I'll submit to you. And God says to Jesus, now I will exalt you. It's the character of the Trinity. It's, it, it's a logical requirement of personhood that, that, each, that every person has a will. Okay? So we don't, we, we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, one being with three persons. So every person of the Trinity has a will. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the darkest moment of Jesus' life, He says, God, if you can, take this cup from me. But if not, your will and not my will. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, submits His will to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And because of that submission, the Father says to Jesus, now I'll give you the name that's above every name. And so we believe that the, per, the, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is absolutely a person. Don't let any Jehovah's Witness knock on your door and convince you that the Holy Spirit is just a power. The Scripture always calls Him a He. He teaches us. He convicts us. He can be grieved. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person who is actively involved in the mission of God, which is our redemption. Okay, so I want to talk to you real quick about what's called the kenosis theory. I'm not, I don't, I do not fully hold to the kenosis theory, but there, there's some things that I want to, I just want to point out. Um, the kenosis theory is that in Christ's incarnation, he laid aside certain aspects of his divinity. That, that Christ, in his, in his incarnation, he laid aside his omniscience. Because he'll say things like, um, I don't know the day or the hour in which the judgment is to come. This is the traditional charismatic Pentecostal position it, it, that, we, that, that traditionally Pentecostals believe in the kenosis, that Jesus laid aside aspects of his divinity when he became a human. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the best representation of what the Scripture says. Um, Calvin presents, um, he calls it a repose. And so... Y'all forgive me, because I know I'm in teacher land here, but I'm going to bring it back down, but this is important. Sometimes doctrine actually fleshes out how you live. Do you understand that? And so I'm talking theological world for a second, but it's going to matter when we get to how we live. Um, and that's why Paul, in, every, in the pattern of every epistle, Paul talks, this is just his pattern. He, he talks, he gives a thanksgiving, I'm praying for you, then he talks theology, and then he talks practical living, and then he, then he does the goodbye. And so it's always theology, practical living. That's where I'm going. Okay, so in um, what's called the hypostatic union. Everyone say it with me. Hypostatic union. Just love that word. We believe that, that in the incarnation, I believe that in the incarnation, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not half sweet tea and half unsweet tea. Okay? Fully God and fully man. So I don't believe particularly that Jesus emptied himself of all of his divinity. I believe with John Calvin that Jesus, he concealed it. He didn't operate in all of his divinity. Um, so, and so I believe with the traditional Pentecostal approach that Jesus did his miracles by the Holy Spirit to show us what is available to us. Okay, I believe that emphatically, that Jesus is healing the sick by the Holy Spirit to show us, what, and this is why he, said, why he says in John, that when I go to the Father, greater things will you do. 
So I'm with the, Par- the Pentecostal charismatic movement in that we should be seeing more healing. And the fact that we're not seeing more healing says we need to press in. There's something we haven't learned. We need to, we need to exercise. There's some, our faith, something, we've got to figure it out. I'm there. But I don't believe that he totally threw away his divinity. Because when you catch like um, the mountain of transfiguration, he just busts right out of that bodily show. Okay? And so I think, I think at times when he's saying, t- saying to the, when he's breaking bread and when he's saying to the, to the waves, sit down, just sit down, he's exercising a divine authority at moments. Now, do we have the perfect wisdom to hash through? I, we don't. But, but I believe in, in the hypostatic union um, that, that Christ did, he did choose to not live in full divinity. He could have, came, he could have come born as a king and every time he was hungry, he just said, I'm going to eat now. He, and, and it would have been his right. He could have come and sat on a throne and said, you'll serve me. And, and it, it would have been his right. But he empties himself to the form of a servant. Scholars for years now have agreed that from verse 6 to verse 11 of, of Philippians is a hymn, that Paul is quoting some kind of hymn. Now, in recent years, there have been some pushback with that, but it's still the co- common consensus that from 2, 6, when he says, um, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that all of this language was a hymn that the early church would have, would have sung, that they would have quoted to each other, that they would have reminded themselves that their God was not a God who said, bow down and worship me, but their God was a God who became man. He was this kind of God, this kind of servant, this kind of lover of people, that he would put on human flesh, the prince of heaven, never a migraine headache. He steps into our brokenness, and he, it, it, like he really fast, he feels what we feel. Hebrews said he's tempted in the way in which we're all tempted. That he he would step into our experience. He doesn't say to us, you must become like me. He says, no, I'll become like you. And I'll make the way for you. That's what the early church said to each other. This is the God we serve. So really quick, let me drop, I'm I'm skipping all over, but let me drop this, this statement in context. Why is Paul saying this to the Philippian church? Why is he saying to the Philippian church, Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him. This is how you should live. Let me, let me show you that really quickly. So what we know about Philippians is that Paul is in prison. We, we don't know exactly where he's in. The most common answers is that he's either in Rome, Ephesus, or Caesarea, one or the other, which is basically saying it was one of his imprisonments. Um, he wrote the letter from prison, and this is what's going on. In his imprisonment in that day, um, you would have had to have support. So like in our prison system today, you, you, you go to jail, you eat, they feed you. Um, but at times, so I'm probably getting TMI, um, have you, if you've ever had a family member who's in prison, you know that you can put a little cash on their card so they can get the Pringles, you know what I'm saying? They get the Pringles to trade them for the cigarettes. Um, that's how our system works. Um, but in their day, you, you, were, you needed to be provided for if you were in prison. So Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, and Paul's saying in Philippians that he has gone without that he's been hungry, that there are churches that he's preached to, that he's planted, that he's given his very life so that they could have gospel joy that are not supporting him in this brokenness, not supporting him in his need. So I've got a couple verses I want to show you. Um, let's start with verse one or chapter 1, verse 5. So go with, go with me there. 
he essentially says, he's saying, I thank God in remembrance of you. And he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For all of you are partakers with me of grace. Listen to this. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Verse 15 in chapter 1 says this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The, for, for, the former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So Paul's saying, I'm in prison for the preaching of the gospel, and some are using this opportunity to promote their own selfish agenda. Some are trying to win my congregation. Some are saying, the good preacher is sat down, I'm going to step in and woo the crowds. Some are using this as a moment for their own glory. And I love what Paul says. But nevertheless, only that Christ is preached. He essentially says, some are preaching gospel to fulfill the needs of their own vanity. As long as the gospel is preached, I'm satisfied. Chapter 2, verse 20, starting in verse 21, he says this. Let's start, uh, yeah, start in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no helpers in the gospel like Timothy who have genuine concern for your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. So Paul's saying to the Philippian church, I'm going to send you Timothy. He's one of the only workers we got who's not filled with selfish ambition and conceit. He actually understands community. He understands the body of Christ. He understands what it is to lock arms with people. He understands the principle that one can chase a thousand, but two can chase ten thousand, that we do better together. Timothy understands it, but no one else does. And in chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, he says this, start in verse 14. He said, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, your Philippians yourself, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, remember Philippi is the capital of Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the the fruit that increases to your credit. Back up. I'm sorry, I'm going to get out of the notes here for a second. But back up to verse 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you now at length, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's saying that you wanted to help, but you didn't have the ability. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have enlear- I've learned in whatever situation that I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned that the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger is this, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the context of that statement even, which we love, and it certainly can be applied to other things, but the context of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is this, 
I've been very hungry in prison, and I still abound in the glory of Jesus. My strength is still sucked from the well, which is Christ Jesus. But essentially, Paul is saying this. I have given my entire life to the gospel. I have worked up and down these cities. I've preached for years and years. Remember in Corinthians when he says, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten. Some scholars think that he was actually, he was actually stoned to death in, in, in Acts and then raised from the dead. Maybe, maybe not, but he's been stoned on multiple occasions. He says in Corinthians, he says, I'm in danger of the Jews and I'm in danger of the Gentiles. They all hate me on account of Christ. And I've given my life for the gospel and many live in disunity and discord with me. Can you, can you imagine going back in time and, and, and investing in that man's ministry? What kind, of, what kind of reward you would have in heaven? Like that's, that's the missionary I would like to support. I would like to have a little fruit from Paul's ministry, but no one partakes. He says, you and Philippi, you're the only ones who have supported me. So Paul drops this kenosis passage, what's called the kenosis passage. He drops this idea that Christ humbles himself to be a servant of all, right, right in the middle of his encouragement to the Philippian church. He's saying, unity is what we're after. Timothy is the only one I have who's not conceited. Be like Timothy. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm putting this on us this morning because I want us to learn what Paul was teaching the Philippian church. I want us to learn that one can chase a thousand and two chase 10,000, that together we have momentum. That when a couple anointed, anointed people get together and start ministering, there's something about the anointing of the Holy Ghost that gets excited. That we can see a river of God start to flow through this city if we would work together and stop with our little fragments. We can do better. We can be better. So my application is only two-pointed, okay? I don't even got a three-point for you because I knew I was going to talk long. Number one, what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is that the Trinity, the, 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 the three persons of the Trinity, they have a, a union of affection for one another. That Jesus says things like, I do nothing without hearing the Father's voice. That, that Jesus says, when I go, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Some theologians describe the Holy Spirit as shy. I don't know if that's the right word, but the Holy Spirit's primary work, what he loves to do is to glorify Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit gets excited about. I think that's why we've lacked anointed in our charismatic circles sometimes because we've stopped preaching the gospel of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit loves. That's when he starts healing the sick, when we start magnifying Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't come to fulfill my own will. I came to fulfill the will of the Father's. I love to be obedient to the Father. And this incredible affection for the Father. Then the Father says to Jesus, he's actually quoting Isaiah 43, which I have for you somewhere in my notes here. Um, maybe I don't. Maybe I didn't do it. He's actually quoting a text that's speaking of Yahweh from, from Isaiah 43, I believe. It might be 44. Which, is, which the text says of Yahweh. It says that, that um, every knee will bow to Him and every tongue will confess that He is Lord of all. And they'll say that there is no righteousness outside of the Lord. 
and your scripture translates that, it, it should say capital L, it should bring your font down from like a 12 to a 10, capital O-R-D. And that's how you know that the Hebrew it actually reads the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, that it literally says that they will say of Yahweh, His name is above every name, and every tongue will confess that Yahweh is Lord of all. But the early church quoted it and they said that Yahweh says of the Son, your name is above every name and you are Lord of all. The Father says to the Son, you are Lord of all. It's this, this, this cycle, this cyclone energy of affection for one another. Love, divine love for each other. And Paul says, this is what you're called to. If your God is a community of selfless love, you are called to be a community of selfless love. And if you are not, a community of selfless love, then you do not reflect your God to your community. You do not reflect Yahweh to your city unless you learn to be a community of selfless love towards one another. Paul says, prefer each other. Think more highly of one another. As a community in our immediate families and as a corporate community of believers, we're supposed to practice this kind of of godly submission towards one another. Learn to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Count others as more significant than yourself. Verse 8. We have to cultivate an atmosphere of servanthood where we actually prefer another. We, uh, Bill and Sue had us over for dinner on Friday night, and I was telling Bill this morning that I was so thankful because Bill is up serving. He's making plates, and he's washing dishes, and he wouldn't let me help him wash the dishes. He's expressing to me Christ's likeness. He's showing me in this moment what Jesus is like. How do we intentionally cultivate this kind of community that when unbelievers step in and we begin to serve them, we begin to help, we start to prefer them, they go, there's something different here. Their God must be different. These are the attributes we strive to emulate. I love, I just love, like, hands and down, I, I love to preach the story of the woman who brought oil before Jesus. Uh, and she, she poured out her perfume on his feet, and there's this, like, beautiful moment. And I love to teach the fact that she obviously went home to get her, uh, her perfume to anoint him. Like, she thought that thing through, but what she did not bring was a towel to wash his feet. She just seized the opportunity. It wasn't her job to wash the feet of Jesus. It was the servant of the house. But when she got there, there was no one with a, no one with a bucket of water and a towel. But she said, what I've got is tears and hair, and I'll take care of this. She just, she just jumped at the opportunity. That's the kind of people we have to be. If not, we are not reflecting our God. We are not doing the gospel. So number, number two, I'm, I'm wrapping up. Number one, they are, they, the, the, the Trinity itself has a unity of affection for one another. And number two, the Trinity is wrapped up. There, there is a unity um, that is aimed at a corporate mission. The Trinity is in itself missional. So, so, so Jesus submits to the Father in order to what? Remember Hebrews tells us that Jesus, he endured for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, the pain, the suffering, because there was an end at hand. He, he comes to earth and he walks with it because he's, 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 he's working towards our final redemption. 
And when he goes to heaven, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to work, actively work towards this mission. The, the Godhead is missional. The Godhead has a purpose. The Godhead has a work. And the Godhead is not willing to allow selfishness to rid them of their mission. So Jesus says to the Father, your will, not my will. But when we submit to selfish ambition, and when we start to gossip about one another, and we start to nitpick one another, and we start to break union with one another, we are putting our selfish desires above the mission. We're not missional anymore. And Paul's saying, listen, the Trinity is missional. You be missional. You get lost in the mission of the gospel. Lose yourself in it. It's not worth being right all the time. You can be wrong every now and you Let them think you're wrong if it maintains the greater work of the gospel being released in this community. So statistics say of the West, of America, and, and this, is, this is a theme that I want to dive into hard in the coming months, um, but I'm just grazing it here for a second. Statistics say that in the West, the church is not growing. We have more churches sprouting up, but the sprouting up churches are only, that we, we only have transfer growth. So we open a new church in our city and everyone who's mad or disgruntled at their church, they shift churches. So we think we have growth, but all we have is disgruntled believers. So I'm saying to you, at some point, we've got to say, wait, we are not being missional. We've quit on our mission. And what's, what's beautiful is that we're still giving to world missions. The church in America is still funding missions in South America and China. Um, we, the, in, in South America, the gospel is thriving. In Africa, obviously, the entire continent, the gospel is thriving. In Asia, the gospel seems to begin to be thriving, but the gospel is not thriving in America because we can give our money, but we can't work together. And so Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he says, this is your mission. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel to every nation. And then he says in Acts 1.8, he says, when you receive the Holy Ghost, power will come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He says to your community first, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So where they are in Judea, the next ring in Samaria, the next outer community, and to the ends of the earth. And so we are concerned with the gospel to every nation. Yes, we should give to missions. We need to do some, we need to start organizing some mission trips. We need to be missional people to the world. But we can't, we can't just keep giving financially and not be missional here. Our community needs the gospel as much as any other community. For heaven's sake, in the South, we have people walking around because claiming to be believers and knowing nothing of the true gospel. Jesus says, good trees produce good fruit. So I'm suggesting that we, we get over ourselves. And this is for me too, okay? Because Caleb, like anybody else, can be, can be, I can be all about me at times. This is, you, you hold me accountable to this too. My wife will, okay? You can, you can write your note to her, and I promise you. We have got to get over ourselves and realize that our mission is more important than our personal, conceited, arrogant postures. If we have little bitter fights with one another, so-and-so gossip, it's sometimes it's good just to bow out. And just to, there are times where people think that I meant something that I didn't mean. They're interpreting me wrong. I, I, just, I just need to apologize and say, I'm so sorry. Because the unity for the gospel's sake is more important to me than being right. 
the anointing, listen to me, the anointing of the Holy Ghost on this house is so much more important than any one of us being right. You hear me? We've got to value it. We've got to value it. And we've got to say that the mission, the gospel, is more important. Much, we're a missional people. Jesus has given us a mission. And so we talked as a, as a staff, and I, I talked with the elders some about this idea of being missional. And as a staff, we talked this week about really developing this idea of like team, of being a, a team of ministers, the Ephesians 4 model, that this isn't just about ministry gifts up here preaching, but this is about the ministry gifts equipping you to do work, and this is a, a team effort to reach this city, and no one gets to tap out. We're, we're trying to develop this idea that we are all ambassadors of Christ, we are all ministers to this city, and we've got to be creative to figure out how we can all start to tap into our individual purpose and calling as we corporately work to see the strongholds, the demonic strongholds of this city bow their knee to the name of Jesus. We're called to teamwork. We have a plurality of giftings, a plurality of personalities. We're a body with multiple parts. And for heaven's sake, and the last thing I'm going to say, just give me, just soapbox one more time. For heaven's sake, the, the, the Pentecostal charismatic community. We should be more missional than any other brand of the church in America because we actually believe that the Holy Ghost can set these drug addicts free. We actually believe that we have the Holy Spirit in this house ready and available to deliver you of your depression. Come and drink from the wells of life. We of all people should be missional for heaven's sake. So I'm asking you to hang with us. I'm asking you to not be so individually minded, but to hang with the body. I'm asking you to be intentional to encourage and to serve one another as we work towards being a people who obey the command. Because I'm not just after me hearing well done, faithful. I want every one of us in this body to stand before God and say, you were missional. You reached people. You, I, was, I was telling the, the staff this week, Let's, let's just try for heaven's sake. Let's just step in the batter's box and swing the bat. Maybe we won't succeed right away. Maybe, maybe we'll miss. Maybe we'll strike out. Maybe we'll try an outreach and no one shows up. Maybe we'll invite people to dinner and no one comes, but at least we try. And maybe we'll learn something. Maybe we'll find a groove where we actually can engage this unique community with the gospel. That's, that's what I'm asking you to hang on to. I'm asking you to plug in, to lean in. Let's, let's, let's let... God be God. Let's let the Trinity be our model. And if the Trinity, if Jesus can humble himself, then you can humble yourself. And if the Trinity can be missional, we can be missional. And I'm sweating now, so I'm done. <laughs> so I'm, I'm suggesting that the Wesleyan churches that are in every city, that they wouldn't be there without George Whitfield. I'm suggesting that Whitfield blazed the first great awakening that every one of us are indebted to. And there's no, his name's nowhere. I'm suggesting that his humility broke a fountain of anointing and of power and of real gospel ministry. And I think we can do the same. I think we can follow his pattern. Maybe we won't, have, maybe we won't be known as the most uh, successful church in this city, but we can, we, can, we can get to a place where hell fears us. We can get to a place where, where heaven sees us and is proud and pleased.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.